Hey friends, thanks for joining me, Jim Baroud, to hear a few insights from leaders who represent our innovation ecosystem. Today's chat is with Lanier Richardson, the head of urban entrepreneurship and economic development at Rutgers, and Serge Lankar, a digital health entrepreneur and angel investor at Jumpstart Angel Network. So my name is Serge Lanchar. Um, I grew up really at, uh, I always proudly say, I grew up at Johnson & Johnson as a sales rep originally in Europe. And then I, I worked in the uh, brand uh, group at, on the consumer healthcare side in, in Skillman, New Jersey. And I say that because I really um, learned a lot during those years and they were very formative for me as, as a person as, and as a, as a business person. Um, and then I went on to, um, you know, join a few VC-backed startups. The first one was CD Now, uh, which was at the time that Amazon was doing books. Uh, we were doing music, uh, got acquired by Bertelsmann. Then I went on to do another medical device startup that we saw, sold to a controlling stake to Procter & Gamble. And then in 2011, I started my own company called CareSpeak Communications, which uh, is a digital health company focused on um, compliance and adherence in the medication space for, for pharmaceutical manufacturers, payers, and, and providers, and, and pharmacies. Um, we sold that in 2008 to Optimize Rx, which is a small cap NASDAQ company. And I literally, a few weeks ago, just completed my earnout with that company, which was a really great experience. I'm still advising the CEO there. Uh, it's been a you know, very, very good experience for us as an acquired company. Great. Uh, Thank you, Serge. All right, Lanier, go ahead. Great. So uh, I am Lanier Richardson. I lead the Rutgers Center for Urban Entrepreneurship and Economic Development. I'm also a faculty member there. Uh, I always tell people I started my career as a bank lawyer. Uh, we had night lawyers in our law department, and every day around this time, I'd fall asleep at my desk because the work was boring. We were making, you know, $100 million loan to some government entity or publicly traded company. It wasn't until it was a pro bono assignment that we had this opportunity to make a $100,000 loan to, like, a barber who was buying his building on the west side of Chicago, which is where I grew up, that the work had meaning for me. And ever since that day... I've been chasing that feeling of getting resources to people and places that other people overlook and undervalue. That's been my passion. And I left the bank after that and uh, started in community development. I built a company with another guy from zero to about $9 million in revenue and was young entrepreneur of the year, uh, SBA, and won pitch competitions and things of that sort. Um, ultimately sold the firm all the highs and lows of entrepreneurship, and then joined uh, General Growth Properties, which is a um, large shopping center owner, developer, manager, $30 billion shopping center REIT, and started doing the same work of doing retail development in ethnic, urban, and underserved areas. And then when the recession hit, I moved to New Jersey to work for Cory Booker, and I headed the economic development organization in Newark, New Jersey. Uh, and when Cory became Senator Booker's, when I moved over to Rutgers and um, and started this work. I'm excited to tell you more about our, our angel fund and our work to support entrepreneurs. All right, well, we'll, we'll give you an opportunity to do that because that, that, that's exciting stuff. So first, let's talk about the entrepreneurial community, right? You both have pretty good uh, sort of an idea of what's going on locally and regionally and, and perhaps even nationally. So tell us how you see how entrepreneurs are doing these days uh, are things getting better? You know, obviously we've just been through a horrible year during this pandemic. 
and it's uh, it's been uneven with the way it's affected uh, folks, obviously. So let's talk about that a bit more. So Linear, why don't you jump off and, and tell so, us a bit more how you see it? Yeah. So I call you know 2020, 2020 hindsight, the year of pandemic, of protest, and the political pandemonium, right? The PPPP, and all of my entrepreneurs had to figure out how to you know pivot and all and the other peers, how we're going to survive. And the entrepreneurs that we have worked with in, at our, uh, our Center for Entrepreneurship fall in really two categories. They're small entrepreneurs operating, you know, main street businesses, brick and mortar type businesses. Uh, there are some entrepreneurs by necessity were laid off and they're doing consultancies. And then, you know, we started this work of helping uh, black and Latino entrepreneurs start and scale technology ventures. In the current climate, everybody's trying to figure out how to pivot. Everybody's re-examining their business model. Everybody's trying to find flexible, patient capital, and you know, new, uh, you know, business, you know, new revenue. Right, and that is just universal, right? And so, some people have done really well with accessing capital from government sources, philanthropic sources. You know, these macro announcements: fifty billion dollars of capital committed to small business and racial justice investment from the Fortune 500 companies. Um, to, you know, folks now trying to do business in a different way and, uh, you know, find, find, again, find new revenue. So, the, you know, entrepreneurs are optimistic and people are trying to figure out how to, you know, how to stay in, stay in the game, continue to grow. And everybody's obviously looking forward to, you know, post uh, shutdown, post, you know, stay at home order. Right, and how are things specifically in Newark? I know that's where you guys are are based. Right. Are things getting a little? I know it's been rough, rough for the city. Sure. So it's interesting. Um, you know, there, there's again a couple of like lines, right? So there's you know, we we worked a lot with uh, small retail restaurant entrepreneurs that are in you know in the commercial quarters of Newark and in sort of the area right around our business business school. Um, you know, sort of central business district of Newark. Well, those businesses are still struggling, right? Because people, Prudential's not downtown, Rutgers is not having students there, none of the colleges and universities are there. So, you know, we have this great coffee shop and restaurants that we love. They're surviving on takeout and gift cards and, you know, they don't have the normal foot traffic, right? But again, people are figuring out how to get grants. The state of New Jersey's been phenomenal in providing grants, CARES Act grants, PPP stuff. Um, you know, to try to keep those businesses alive. The tech companies, you know, are still trying to figure out, can I use this moment to be able to find capital? Um, and we have, you know, Audible's Accelerator, our angel fund, other folks are saying, I'm using this moment to continue to evolve, you know, evolve our business strategy. And then Newark's a, you know, a warm, inviting um you know, I, I call it sort of a, an embracing place for entrepreneurs who want to start and grow a company in an urban environment that's, you know, experiencing a renaissance. So, you know, again, if you're optimistic, you see opportunity for yourself in, in Newark. Got it. Thank you for that. All right, Serge, go ahead. What, do you, what are you seeing out there? Well, yeah, so we as, as you know, as Jumpstart uh, Angel Group, we invest obviously mostly in the in the New Jersey tri-state area, but we also do uh, deals in other parts. Like we recently did a deal in California. We even look at international deals in Europe. 
Uh, so first of all, I think entrepreneurship is never easy, pandemic or no pandemic. Like, let's just <laughs> say it as it is. I think the pandemic obviously, uh, you know, uh, uh, threw a curveball. And I think when I think back, like March, April, May, everybody was like putting things on hold and waiting. A lot of people like, oh my God, what am I going to do now? And then slowly people start, you know, uh, you know, basically looking around the corner and then coming out on the street and saying, hey, there is still sunshine out there. I can do this, right? Um, so uh, I, I would say that some people actually benefited from this. I've seen companies that actually hasn't, if it wasn't for COVID, I'm not sure they would have survived, obviously in the digital space, right? Especially the specific example I'm talking about is healthcare. In healthcare, um, the pandemic helped a lot because it accelerated a lot of the resistance people had through virtual care and so on and so forth. On the flip side, if you're a brick and mortar store like uh, Lanier talked about, then obviously that 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 is a way more difficult situation. Now, out in my town, the pizza delivery guys are still doing really, really well, right? And then uh, I think it's really imp important to be flexible and adaptive. And, you know, if somebody is a, you know, ha has a mindset of inflexibility and doesn't adjust, they're going to pay the price, unfortunately, right? So um, it, it, it really depends. You've seen a lot of people benefit. You've seen a lot of people suffer. But, it, it, uh, you know, I think uh, there's probably a, a, a divide between digital versus brick and mortar. But even digital side people, you know, who were, you know, if, if you're in a stage where, you know, you're basically managing a monthly, you know, cash burn and um, and all of a sudden your clients are putting things on hold for three, four months, then that, that's a problem, right? Uh, especially if you have, if your payables are 90, 120 days, and then on top of that, people add some delay in decision-making, you, you know, it, it's a problem. And then again, it depends. Like, for example, um, you know, if you're a VC back company and you have some some backing versus self-funded, like my company, I basically self-funded it most of the time. It's it's a very different situation. So um, uniformly, I think it was it was a, a, a you know the three four month were very kind of on hold. People were not sure where things are going, and then we saw a lot of things pick up and really even make up things in, in the fourth quarter uh, quite substantially. Got it. Thanks. Okay, Linear, tell us about the, the investment outlook as you see it. And first, tell us about your new fund. Yep. So um, we launched uh, in the middle of last year uh, a fund we call the Black and Latino Angel Investment Fund of New Jersey. Um, and the thesis of the fund um, was that um, the Rutgers Business School in Newark is in the same building with Audible.com and Newark Venture Partners. Um, and early on, the thought was, you know, Newark Venture Partners made a real public commitment to, uh, in, you know, diversity and inclusion and, and has really, you know, been, you know, done some really cool things there. What we did early on with some of the accelerator partners is try to identify firms that were interesting, but didn't make the cut, so to speak. And we wrapped our uh, advisory services work and capacity building work at, at Rutgers Business School around those entrepreneurs. And then we really wanted the, the group, the accelerators and other angel funds to you know, take a second look, right? Um, but what we found was there still was this gap, the first 25, 50, $100,000 of capital that was needed to even get people and you know ready to for new adventure partners or ready for a jumpstart, and so our initial approach was: can we find committed individuals who 
would you know make this uh, you know financial investment that will accelerate companies, growth companies, tech, tech-enabled, tech-adjacent companies led by people of color. And so we found uh, this eclectic group, one of the newer venture partner founders, Queen Latifah's accountant, you know, a Rutgers professor, a Rutgers graduate, you know, my wife and I, and that made these commitments of $50,000 to launch the fund. We've ultimately gotten other uh, capital from the uh, federal government that underwrites all of the costs. The certain foundation has provided capital. So now we have this fund uh, that our aim is to grow it to $10 million that will make you know, investments in companies. Cool thing, we made our first investment right before uh, the holidays and small little investment from my angel fund. So this was someone that went through our capacity building program at Rutgers and got a $10,000 grant comes to our angel fund after a series of, of meetings. And, you know, we commit a small $25,000 angel round, but at the same, in fact, it's in our same safe agreement, they raised another $115,000 from inside car from investors. So this is an entrepreneur now, great product. Uh, and I hope to do that 10 or 20 more times, right? Where some capacity building, some angel investment, $25,000, $50,000 from our fund, a very rigorous due diligence process. We hired someone who did 30 of these funds around the country. Now we hope to share our due diligence with people like Jumpstart and Tech Launch and you know MVP uh, that might help the entrepreneurs continue to climb the ladder. That's our thesis. Help people get to the next level. Great, great. Thank you for that. Uh, Serge, go ahead. Tell us what you're seeing. Yeah, so I think, uh, like I said, after the initial slowdown, I think we've seen things go, you know, back to a pretty good pace. Uh, look, if you think about it as, as a private investor, you know, where do you put your money these days, right? The, the you know, you can get what half a percent in the money market. Uh, you know, the bonds are not in a good place, and I think the equities market is is more uncertain than ever, right? You just watch you know, daily fluctuations of some stocks up to 10% on a, on a daily basis, some of the smaller cap stocks, right? You look at Bitcoin, at Ethereum, I mean, it's all over the place. So as, as a private investor, because there's so much uncertainty in the market, it kind of makes, I think a lot of people feel like, well, I may as well feel more comfortable taking risk in this high risk investments also, because there seems to be risk everywhere. Uh, real estate is, you know, overvalued. Uh, so where do you put your money? So I think that, you know, obviously, you know, you have different stages, but, you know, as an angel, I think there, there, is, um, there is quite a bit of capital. I'm seeing valuations which are higher than when I was raising money, you know, way back. Uh, what, what, what I'm seeing now is that anywhere from eight to 12 multiples on, on revenues, uh, early stage revenue uh, companies. We've even, I've seen even um, in deals where people have, you know, valuations that are being invested in pre-revenue that, you know, in my view is, is, is unrealistic, but the market is bearing it. So um, I think that that's also driven by the fact that you've seen um, this whole psychology of, you know, uh, of FOMO, right? Fear of not missing out in the market itself. And I think that's translating somewhat even to private investors being willing to put money in some pretty high uh, valuations and high multiples. Yeah, yeah, no, and, and as we're seeing, as you know, now with Zoom, investors are more freely investing out of sort of their local geography, right? So I think that's that's good for 
that's good for everyone, right? Opens up new opportunities and also um, provides entrepreneurs, uh, you know, more funding um, avenues as well. Um, so um, what about, uh, you know, the, the entrepreneurs now as far as funding? Now, Lanier, you just mentioned a great example. Um, are you seeing, are you, do you have any advice directly for entrepreneurs who are looking for funding, you know, both locally and, and regionally? Uh, what, would, what advice would you give? Yeah, and you know, so you know, again, I sit at Rutgers Business School, and it's, Rutgers has been a phenomenal place. It, it's, you know, our chancellor and our dean have made space, equipment, resources available to the community of entrepreneurs, and you know, really cool stuff. What we have been working with entrepreneurs is first, where is their non-dilutive capital, right? So you know, it's, you know, uh, one of our professors. The, you know, steam guy, Jeff Robinson has helped entrepreneurs apply for SBIR grants, right? Every day we're getting an email from some corporation uh, that's made a commitment to small business. And so this work of helping people access any non-dilutive capital is, you know, advice number one, right? You know, fire up your creative storytelling and the cut and paste, you know, feature on your, uh, you know, on your computer and apply anywhere you can for non-dilutive capital. Is, is funny. And then two is the narrative and the numbers, right? People have to understand initially what the strategy is, what the business model is. Do I understand the entrepreneur? Do I understand the story? And then, you know, we're spending a lot of time helping entrepreneurs communicate the value proposition of the business model and the financial return projections. And are they reasonable? And, and, and so, you know, to the extent that entrepreneurs are trying to raise money, um, it's about the story, but it's also about people believing, um, you know, in the projections and in the, you know, the viability, viability of numbers. There's money there. There's committed capital. Um, our fun with our little angel, black angel, is to try to open it up and, um, you know, almost institutionalize the friends and family round, right? You know, that's that's the challenge, right? You know, folks, uh, not you know, we don't know a lot of angels, right? So you know. Um, but opening up those networks is, uh, is, is work that we really are excited about doing. So Serge, what, do you, uh, what advice are you giving now to uh, entrepreneurs? Well, I, I think it also depends what stage you're in, right? But the lot, you know, the, a lot of times, I, I, you know, you have to ask yourself, do I really have a fundable business right, or a fundable um, uh, uh, proposition? And I think a lot of people uh, um, are, are not sure where to go uh, and, and how to figure it out. I, I have a little bit of a different view on, as an entrepreneur on a lot of these, you know, let's call it free money. Um, I think it's great if you can get free money. The problem is, in my experience, it's a very lengthy and laborious process. So as an entrepreneur, I have to choose, do I, will I invest time to chase uh, uh, funding through a, you know, writing grants or will I chase money through revenues by my, you know, a hopeful pilot with the client? And, and that's a tough call, right? It's the same thing you have to say, do I have, you know, in the limited amount of time I have, which is limited my, by my cash as an entrepreneur, will I chase revenues through by, by getting an investor or VC, or will I do that by chasing um, a client, you know, a potential client? In my case, I chose to chase the revenues versus investment because I was like, if I don't raise the money, I'll spend all my cash, I'm done. If I raise money through creating a client base, then I'll have recurring revenues and so on and so. So these are very tough things and calls to make. But I think one of the things that I see um, a lot of entrepreneurs don't realize they have to do the hard work, right? They have to be scrappy. They cannot 
they, they, you have to be willing to ask for help. You should ask everybody for their opinion, but you should draw your own conclusions, right? And, um, you know, I think, look, you can Google stuff, you can read a lot, but what, what nobody really tells you as an entrepreneur is that it's, you're constantly doubting yourself. You're constantly in a state of mind of doubt, yet you have to perceive, persevere and you're, you feel emotionally on, on a yo-yo all the time, right? So uh, it's really important to, to ultimately trust your own gut because you know when I was young, I used to think somebody has title and money, I should listen to them because they know something I don't. And then you realize that you need to trust your gut and your common sense and follow that uh, and make a decision based on that. But again, get solicit input from everybody. Everybody may have, uh, even your grandmother may have an opinion that may uncover something you didn't think about it because it's so commonsensical. Um, yet you have to draw your own conclusions. Yeah, and I, I think that it's a good point you make about finding the revenue or the customer, that first big customer. Uh, hopefully trying to do both at the same time, but, but that helps if you can get that customer. And I think now more than ever, there's more ways to connect with those, whether it's a corporate uh, or others. And even if you're not getting funded uh, yet, uh, there's ways to approach those corporates, whether it's through you know, folks like me or you or Lanier or, or Tech Council Ventures or MVP. So even if they don't, they're not funding you, they can connect you with those customers and get a pilot going, which, which, which is very helpful. But I, one more thing I want to add is like, I've, and I've seen that in the US and in Europe, I've also some work there, is that a lot of time I'll, I'll encounter entrepreneurs who are, who are looking for funding and they haven't demonstrated they've actually put some skin in the game, right? You've got to put some money of your own, you know, sell your, you know, you need to build a prototype. I don't have the money. Well, sell your car. You know, I'm sorry, but that, you know, that that's how it goes. You, you can't, you know, why somebody else's money less worth than your own money. So you really have to demonstrate as an entrepreneur that you put some blood, sweat and blood, sweat and tears and cash into what you're doing before you can expect others put, to put some faith behind you. Yeah, no, yeah, I think that's- let me, let me add one other thing. And it really, I, I'm gonna call this a, um, a, uh, a message to potential investors and angel investors, right? In this moment, right? So, when I started my company, people told me, you got to do friends and family round. You got to do friends and family round. And I always told people, I went around to my friends and family and I got a round of applause. It wasn't because they didn't support my idea. There wasn't, uh, you know, historical generational wealth. This moment right now is really calling for angel investors and people with wealth to look at different entrepreneurs to take a different risk to, you know, it's the reason why we formed our fund because, you know, people are saying, I, I got a great idea. I got great experience. I have customer, I have revenue and I still am not getting funded. And so there's an opportunity now for investors who want to, you see the income inequality, you see sort of the racial wealth gap and the strife in our neighborhood, in our community, and also recognizing that our economy would be uh, supercharged if more people of color could grow companies and hire people. So that starts with uh, folks taking uh, risk in seeing opportunities and investing in companies that they might not have initially thought about. So I really I just wanted to take a moment and make the, you know, make the call to say, look at a different entrepreneur in a different way. If you haven't invested in a company that's led by a person of color, 
in, in 2020, you're, you're, you're missing both an economic opportunity and you're missing sort of the social, social justice opportunity that really is needed right now. Before we get to questions, um, why don't you share with us just one thing that uh, you tell all entrepreneurs, you know, as they're uh, trying to launch or trying to grow their business? Yep, you know, standard advice. Cash is king, you gotta be profitable. Cash is oxygen. You know, you gotta come up with the model first. Right? As I said, it's, it's you know, you, you gotta have a business model that people believe in the projections that is gonna, gonna generate revenue, right? And it's going to be profitable and ultimately is gonna be able to, to you know, to have cash, right? To the, the entrepreneurs I work with, I've spent so much time saying, gotta be profitable first, gotta figure out the model first. Otherwise, you know, it doesn't make sense to be out trying to trying to raise capital. It's, it's, it's already so difficult to get. Uh, that's a great reminder. So that's my advice. Great reminder. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that, Lanier. I'm, I'm always blown away, um, you know, maybe because I bootstrapped my own company. So cash is king was always the mantra for me. And, and also, you know, I came in as, as, a, as an immigrant here when I was 27. Nobody gave me anything. So I had to watch every dollar. And I see this, you know, there's a lot of companies that are kind of, you know, well, let me just grab market share first. I don't worry about profitability. Well, while I get it conceptually, like it just doesn't sink in, you know, right here. It just doesn't feel right. It just doesn't make sense. So I'd say I, I'll, I'll echo what Lanier say. The other thing I, what's really important, in my opinion, is to demonstrate a good product company and showing passion for your product. And I think it's also important to, you know, especially like one thing I've learned um, good programmers, right? Because a lot of startups are, 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 are software-based companies these days. So what I've learned is that a lot of software people can find a high-paying job everywhere. And it's very hard to keep these people in order to, and, and they don't care about money as much because they can get, get money anywhere. So having a cause that they feel purpose around is really important in building in teams in general, especially when you have a, you know, a uh, 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 workforce like software people who, who are flight risk at all times because, you know, somebody's always going to offer them more money if they're a good programmer. So creating a purpose around your product and, and mission and really, you know, living that passion on a daily basis is really important for you to when you have the low points as an entrepreneur, plus for your whole team and keeping them, you know, uh, using it as a glue. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that makes a lot of sense. Let me get to questions. So one was, what is the typical return for uh, an angel investor? <laughs> a lot of time you don't get any. So let's be honest, like for angel investor, when you make that investment, you basically feel you said goodbye to the money and then, you know, it's a numbers game, right? I think what are the statistics? Like if on 20 investments, you'll you lose on 10 to 12, you know, three, four will break even, two will be good. And then you wait for that one win to make up for everything else and then some. So, uh, <laughs> you know. Yeah, echo the same thing. We just, you know, did some research for um, the New Jersey Economic Development uh, Authority. And uh, it's the same thing. It's like, look, you know, if you want to imagine that you're gonna get a 12, 14, 15% return, you got to invest in 20 companies and you don't know which one is going, you know, what 10 are not going to work, what five are just going to return capital and the, you know, the two or three that are you know, going to outperform. But our aim and um, the fund advisor that we have that set up 30 funds and say, look, if you guys can you know, do the requisite due diligence and invest in 20 companies 
uh, you know, the objective in his experience over 30 funds have been, you know, investors should hope for a, a 12 to 15%, uh, you know, return over time. Got it. And so what are some of the strategies for entrepreneurs to connect with investors while most of us, you know, are working from home and remote? I'll, tell, I'll just do really practical for, for me personally as an entrepreneur, as well as for the entrepreneurs we serve, the Zoom environment has been phenomenal for me. You know, I can get people on a call, right? Where I would normally, and, and it's not weird, right? Normally, if I wanted to, you know, meet with Serge, we'd have to schedule, you know, three weeks out and figure out where we meet. Um, you know, now if I, you know, 15, 20 minutes is not a discount that we're doing it virtually. And I go, oh, I wish we were in person. You know, this is the norm of operating and you got one-on-one -on -one time with people. So this is the chance to work the network any way you can through LinkedIn, through seminars like this. And you're sending little emails and chat. You can make the connection um, unless somebody really doesn't want to meet with you. Uh, this is the time where you can get people on a one-on-one, -on -one, uh, more likely to get people one-on-one -on, -one on a Zoom call to at least hear your story. Uh, so that's the entrepreneur. I've been telling entrepreneurs, you know, do everything you can to generate, uh, you know, sort of marketing and outreach efforts because, uh, you know, you got this moment where this virtual, you know, meeting is acceptable practice, maximize that moment. So I, I would say first, you need to know where you are in your journey. You don't want to, you know, you only have so much ammunition to use. So don't shoot before you're ready in the sense that don't be contacting angel investors before you're ready for an investment, right? So you need to understand that. Now, first of all, it, networking is important for every stage of, of growth that you're in. So, you know, just connect with people. I agree, virtual Zoom is, is very, very practical and, and, and it's easy. People, you know, use LinkedIn, do your homework, right? You mean, you know, have a scorecard as to what you think you're looking for, whether it's your first client you're trying to pilot with, you're looking for investor, you know, create a scorecard. And then it's just a tedious job of filling out your Excel sheets and tracking like, a, you know, like a sales business funnel of uh, who you contacted, who you responded, who didn't, and then fine tune your message, right? Less is more. So, so it's, 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 you know, it took me probably, I don't know, three, four years before I got to the point where I can explain what I do in a simple manner. And it took me many tries and many blank faces were like blank looks saying like, what is this guy talking about until I realized how I need to present it. And it's just, it's an iterative process that takes time. So the more people you talk to and the more so you, and you can't be shy about it. Like I used to go to my kids' soccer games and like, you know, yank other people's on, on, on the sleeve. So what do you do? And they, they said, I work in pharma. I'm like, huh, let me tell you about what I do, right? You're constantly pitching. You're constantly evangelizing what you do and you can't have no shame. You just have to show passion and people will notice your fat passion and that passion will basically get you to a certain point. On the flip side, obviously, you need to understand at what point do you draw the line and say, maybe I need to pivot or maybe I just need to, you know, and, and everybody has to figure out their own thing. But Traditionally, I think there's a book called The Dip, the basic traditional people usually give up too soon, right? Right. So uh, here's a follow-up question to the uh, one about returns. Uh, and, and the question is, if you don't believe there's not much return on investment, why do you do it? And what and how long does it take to make a living out of it? 
so I don't like I don't do it for making a living out of it. I do it for for multiple reasons. First of all, um, as an entrepreneur, I get excited about meeting other entrepreneurs and I have the luxury now of being part of somebody else's journey. And it's 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 a privilege. It's 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 exciting and so on and so forth. So for me, and I think for a lot of entrepreneurs, that that a lot of angels, that's the main reason. And then you know, eventually, you may even want to go involved in a company more than just as an investor. So you know, different also different angels. You need to do homework in terms of like you know, what's their investment thesis? You know, some may just invest in uh, AI companies or industry, but others in maybe in minority companies or women-led companies. So you have to understand, you know, what what is the personal interest of that investor and make sure that you're the right match and position yourself appropriately. But I don't think anybody does angel investing professionally. If they're doing professionally, then they may start a small fund and so on and so forth. I agree with that. But again, it's hard to imagine saying I make my living, you know, uh, you know, as an angel. Uh, however, I also agree that, you know, it's all about connecting and a passion and trying to find a place where you believe your experience and your capital will have impact. Now, you know, I'm a new angel, so to speak, and running a new fund. So I'm optimistic and I believe the numbers that said if, you know, we can get a, a 12 or 15% return if we, you know, do our homework and invest in, you know, 20 plus companies. So. Uh, I do expect that we'll have a financial return. And I, I imagine most angels, uh, you know, have that same optimism about, you know, return on investment. Yeah. And, and let me just sort of emphasize that we're lucky as in this state, in this region to have a robust ecosystem where we do have wealthy entrepreneurs who are angel investing and helping other companies. And there's enough uh, angel type groups and, and venture firms where they could be involved uh, to, again, not necessarily make a living, but give back to the community, maybe hit that home run, uh, but in the end, you know, help others. And, and I think that that's a really important thing for, uh, I'm glad that question came up because it's important and to I, sort of I realize. Add, yeah, I, I want to add to that. And you know, again, as, as, uh, as a, someone who came here from, from a different, different place, I will say that this whole paying it forward mentality is very uniquely American. And, and what I think makes this country very, uh, uh, great in many ways that, you know, a lot of people here came as under, underdogs uh, or, or grew up as underdogs and, um, you know, and want to help others who are underdogs. That, that's a very much um, uh, a part of the Americana, you know, that, that I've experienced, which is, which is a really good thing. And then I think you take that to the next level with true entrepreneurs who've lived uh, the, this journey of, of ups and downs, um, they will help you for, no reason in the sense that they don't expect anything in return. And I will tell any entrepreneur, there's somebody who's offering to help you and wants something in exchange, they're not real, right? True entrepreneurs will just say, hey, you're working this, I know this guy, call him or I'll make an intro. Because you really want to help people because you've been there. You know how hard it is and you, you appreciate every door that's open for you, right? So that's kind of been my experience. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, so here's another question. What would you say is the biggest hindrance for entrepreneurs to grow from a sole proprietor model to scale, to employ, you know, many, many folks uh, and grow their business to the next level? Uh, I'll, I'll add, but please, uh, Sergio, you know, I, um, you know, I, I just, 
finished this book where um, they talked about um, sort of bedrock entrepreneurs versus high growth entrepreneurs. And, you know, there's some people in this line of, hey, I'm just trying to build my business and sort of feed my family and, you know, grow with I control. And there's some people who start out and very early on, you know, with this mentality of, I want to have a high growth, you know, company and, 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 and take the risk and, and, and build the team. The second category, the research all really established. You got to have a co-founder. You got to have a team. You have a higher probability of success as you continue, you know, to take on and build and grow. The, you know, the solopreneur trying to grow, I think that's, that's um, you know, that's a, a more difficult, uh, you know, process. It's sort of what's strategic? How do I get capital? Am I trying to control? Am I willing to give up control? You know, you take on angel investment and venture capital, you know, an entrepreneur, you're more likely to get fired from the company you found, right? So it's really a mentality of how do I want to run my entrepreneurial race? Am I trying to run it as a small company where I control everything and, you know, I get to a million or $5 million of revenue, I'm great. Or, you know, this vision is that I want to have a, you know, a $5 billion company, a publicly traded company. And, uh, you know, and, or the market is taking me there and my customers are there and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going along for the ride. I just think it's some is very, most of it is a decision and strategic. And hopefully some of it is just, you know, you get lucky and you got customer demand and you got to grow a company and you got to build a team. And um, you know, that's, that's, that's my perspective. I think it also depends on what stage of life you're in, right? I have three kids in their 20s. I tell them now's the time to make as many mistakes and take as many risks as possible. Versus when I was growing up, I was told, be a good student. If you're a good student, you go to a good school, you, go, you get a good job, you live happily ever after, which was a delusion, obviously. We all know that. But finally, we're living the reality of like, let, you know, let, let young people really take risks and do that. So if, if you're in your 20s, you can go move back into your parents' house and start a company. By all means, you should do it, right? In my case, I was in my early 40s, three kids and a wife didn't work when I started my company. And I think most people will, you know, will, will not take that risk. I did for, for, for because of just how I was built. And, um, you know, I basically was that solo founder guy and I would never do it again, right? Because you have nobody to commiserate with. You cannot go to people in your media circle because they're like, well, we told you so. So you really have to persevere. And, um, you know, when I started, you know, I was doing, a, we built a, a CRM that used interactive text messaging in healthcare. And everybody told me, you're nuts. Nobody will ever do that, let you use texting in healthcare. Turned out, you know, we were right. And, uh, but the problem was I raised, you know, very minimum money from seed investment from United Healthcare and then never raised a dollar again for, for different reasons. But I, I would not recommend to do it that way because it's just too hard and too painful. So I would always recommend, you know, find co-founders, you know, uh, the sooner you do it, the better in the sense that you have less people that depend on you that prohibits you from taking those risks. Um, and, you know, and, you know, just go for it. Great, great, great insights. Uh, speaking of entrepreneurs who give back to the community, Mario Casabona asks, is asking a question. What is your opinion about other uh, regions in the U.S. from an investment and startup point of view? Sir, do you have perspective? I'll, I'll, I really, I'll I really don't. I mean, my, my experience is, you know, a little bit of the West Coast, um, mostly on the East Coast. And then, you know, I've done some stuff in Europe. 
Um, and I just think that we're, we're so connected today with information that, that it really doesn't matter. I and mean, I've seen, you know, I, I come from what used to be the former Yugoslavia. So I, I follow people in Serbia and Croatia and I'm blown away how well informed they are. And, and they live in a quote unquote, you know, developing country. But, you know, people just have access to information equally everywhere today. And, um, you know, you can live in, in, in you know, the, the, the furthest corner of the world as long as you have internet access and you have intellectual curiosity and a willing and have good communication skills you can really uh, learn a lot and be part of a lot of different things I mean I've seen you know virtual companies that are multiple continents that are startups and function really well so I you know I you know there probably are things that look if, if you're in 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 the valley or if you're in New York City, sure, you're already kind of, you know, mentally wired differently because you grew up in that ecosystem, but versus somewhere else. Uh, but if you're built in a way where you're willing to take risk and you're curious, then, you know, there's really nothing to stop you from an information gathering and a networking standpoint. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I echo that with the only, you know, in my economic development hat, I see, you know, other regions making the case, you know, Chicago, I spent time there. They're making the case that, you know, there's angel capital, there's university, there's, you know, infrastructure and support and, you know, wealth. Uh, North Carolina, folks down in Dallas, I see, you know, Tennessee, uh, you know, Chattanooga, they've done interesting things. So I think everybody's trying to make the case because they want the innovation and want, want the growth, on, you know, the growth that comes from um, the growth companies. But Lenier, I have a son who, who moved to, to uh, Silicon Valley at Stanford, and he was like, Dad, I'm never coming back. It's just big ideas. You know, nobody talks about a million-dollar company in Silicon Valley. Everything's about, you know, uh, you know a unicorn. So uh, I imagine it's certainly easier, uh, but I, I do see more economic development, uh, you know, officials really trying to make stuff happen. But Lanier, just to add, because like, I think something you touched on that, that I'm very... Um, cognizant of is that no matter where you are in, in, in this country, this world, you know, poverty is the biggest problem, right? Because po poverty basically disqualifies people from opportunity. Uh, and that's true where everywhere. So, you know, there's plenty of actual research done by WHO that, you know, universal basic income and, and, and uh, you know, has, has really powerful impact for people who get, you know, uh, like microloans that's been documented in, you know, in, in, in pilots in Asia and Africa and so on and so forth. So I think one of the things, certainly in this country, where, where the income, the income uh, uh, um, disproportionately is, is, is you know, getting worse, the, the difference is I think we have to uh, keep in mind that, that you know, access to capital and opportunity and especially education is 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 really a, a great uh, factor of, of 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 providing you know more equitable opportunity for people. Absolutely, um, and we are seeing just an equalization across the planet, right? Where where really it's true, startups can happen anywhere, uh, and money can find you anywhere, and as long as you have the talent and can build a virtual network and, and a virtual team then you can be successful. We're almost, uh, we're almost done here because we're, we're coming to the close of the hour. There was one quick question, Lanier, I wanna ask you about franchises. What franchises have you seen uh, in the urban centers that, that continually are successful? Wow, that's a, gr that's a great question. So we have, um, put it this way, I'm now invested 
in a couple of, you know, sort of UPS store franchises, right? It's all of these different little revenue centers, right? We still see the, um, a lot of little restaurants, uh, uh, you know, uh, as opportunities. I have, again, my focus, our center is entrepreneurs of color, 70% are African-American and Latino. The franchise, you know, model in theory gives people a higher probability of success if they're just, you know, trying to start. So we've been looking at models. Again, I love this little UPS store. As I said, we've invested a couple hundred thousand dollars in, in two or three of them personally. Uh, and, um, but we have some restaurant entrepreneurs. We've done some stuff with some of the insurance uh, agents. It's, you know, more of the services. Uh, and I'm hoping that, you know, there'll continue to be opportunities there. Got it. All right. We're going to end now. But before we end, I want to ask each of you to uh, recite a poem or a saying that you want to share with the uh, with the audience here. So, uh, who, uh, Lanier, you want to go first? So, yeah, I'll go first. Mine is a, a poem by um, a, a noted African-American, ben, Dr. Benjamin E. Mays, He's president of Morehouse College. I uh, love his, his writing. And this is a uh, you know 50 word poem. It says, I only have a minute, 60 seconds in it, forced upon me. I did not choose it, but I know that I must use it. I gotta give account if I abuse it, suffer if I lose it. I only have a tiny minute, but eternity is in it. I love that. Thank you. Serge, go ahead. Yeah, mine is really uh, one of the favorite things I read is, it, I, I won't quote exactly, it was something along the lines that once you become comfortable with uncertainty, um, you open yourself up to limitless opportunities, right? And the reason I like that is because we all live our lives either through fear or through hope, right? And I think fear is the biggest you know, paralyzer of, of, of so many things and opportunities in people's lives. And especially if you want to be an entrepreneur, uh, most of the time it's fear that's holding you back. So uh, I think being comfortable with uncertainty is, is, is not an easy thing to, to adapt to. But if you can work on that every day, putting yourself out of the comfort zone. And, and the reason I'm saying that is that, you know, even as an entrepreneur, when things were going well, I noticed I was getting too comfortable. And every now and then, such as the COVID situation, I'm sure put a lot of people out of the comfort zone. And some of them actually were able to leverage that to do some things bigger and better because of it. So, right. And I think both of those are sort of tie into each other, right? Especially as we've lived through this pandemic, right? We've seen the value of time and we've seen the, the, the reality of uncertainty, right? So the, the more effective we get in responding to uncertainty and getting used to it, uh, and managing our time more wisely every little minute, then we're gonna be uh, more successful. So I wanna thank Serge, I wanna thank Lanier. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks for joining us. I hope you enjoyed the show. Please like it, leave a review and subscribe. See you soon.